0: Good morning. Glad to see each and every one of you this morning. Glad to be in the house of the Lord with you all to worship with you. Uh, we do want to keep our pastor and Carol in our prayers as they're still traveling, visiting their kids on the East Coast. Uh, we want to make sure that we continue to remember them and as they uh, just have a restful time, that they would have a safe trip back to us. Uh, not sure what, I can't remember what day they're coming back. I know it's, I think, maybe later this week, um, but I know Pastor won't, he won't be in the pulpit next week either. Uh, I'll have that privilege again. Uh, you can determine whether or not you count that a privilege. Uh, before we get into our message, just a, a way of announcement, I want to draw something to your attention that was in the bulletin, uh, and just because there are some special details that I wanna, we want to make sure you pay attention to, uh, it's on the back page, and you can see that we're going to be, we're updating our our church directory. Uh, we we haven't done one in a few years, and we want to make sure that it's updated with all of our, you know, our current members and attenders, that you have a record and are able to follow along and find who's part of our church. Uh, I know that uh, many of you, our, our elders, and many uh, others in the church, they like to use it as a way to pray for our church family, and it's nice to have those pictures of the family. Uh, if you're trying to remember who was here or who, who was that that you saw at church on Sunday. So we would we in order to get that done as best we can to have as many people in there and have correct information and have the information that you want in there now you should be receiving an email an email or a te- is it an email just an email or, a te- or a text or text Okay, you could, from uh, Creative Imaging, who is doing our, our directory, and it will be a paper and an online directory. So you'll have access that you can go in and you can look online, and uh, if you need to find somebody's phone number or just you want to see people's pictures so you can pray for them, that will be available. You'll be getting an email, and you can, don't delete that, you need that to sign up and select the time when you will go and get your picture made, and you can also select what information you want in the, in, in the directory. Uh, so if you have any questions about that, if you need help with that, you can always stop by the office and talk to Debbie. Because uh, we, we want to make sure that we have the most complete information and we want to get a, just a full directory so we have everybody, just know we know who's part of our church. Um, so pay attention to that, to that when it comes through. If you get that email or that text, don't, don't delete it. Think it's spam. Um, just want to make sure that you knew that that was coming. All right. That being said... Again, I just want to say what an honor and a privilege it is to 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 be with you and to bring the word uh, to sit. It's it's such an honor to be at this part of this church and to be able to sit under the faithful teaching of God's word each and every week. And it is a privilege to bring today's message to you from James's letter. As we're going to be in James chapter one, and we're going to be focusing on verses nineteen through twenty-five this morning. If you want to go ahead and open up your copy of God's word, you can have it there. Uh, but as we prepare to receive God's word this morning. Let's open with prayer. Our holy, mighty, and sovereign God, Lord, we ask that you would open up our hearts, Lord, to receive your holy word this morning. May we come to you with humble hearts, humble spirits, with a desire to heed your instruction, your correction, and edification. God, we recognize you are good that your words are true and perfect. And may it please you to bless the house of your servants with your spirit's presence as we look to your word this morning. May you remove any distractions from our minds and our hearts so that we might focus completely on you today. May you receive all the glory that is due your holy name. And it's in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, I would invite you once again to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we look to the letter of James. Again, James 1, verses 19 through 25. Know this, my beloved brethren: Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is, like, is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant inerrant, eternal, and holy word. And may the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to begin this morning with an English grammar lesson, which I realize is not the most interesting way to grab the interest of your audience as one prepares to preach. But here it goes nonetheless. I want to talk about the difference between active and passive. When we talk about the active and passive voice in grammar, we're referring to the action that is performed. It's a, if a sentence, which is written in the active voice, the subject performs the action. And in the passive voice, the subject receives the action. So by way of an example, in a sentence where the subject performs the action would be something like, the boy hit the ball. Okay? The subject being the boy, the verb hit, the, 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 the subject performed the action. Okay? That is an active sentence. Okay? An, an example of a sentence where the subject receives the action would be, the boy was hit by the ball. Okay? So he, the boy received, the, the subject received the action. Now, I only mention this not to show off my skills and knowledge as a writer because they don't extend much further than that. But to help us understand the difference between an active and passive faith. We're going to be spending a couple of weeks in the book of James uh, this morning and then next Sunday... And what we, we could even view these two messages as part of a larger series that I began back at the beginning of this year. Uh, if you remember, uh, I started this year preaching through, our, uh, through a passage in Acts 20 uh, on the responsibility of the elders in the church. And then in the spring, I was able to preach a message from Paul's letter to Titus, exhorting the church body to fulfill their God-ordained roles as men and women in the church. So if we look at today's and next week's message as part of that larger series that's directed to the church, we could call this a biblical model for church growth. We just see this, this, oh, this series that I've kind of been going through, the, this, what I've been wanting to bring to you. And of course, this is not referring to numerical growth. This isn't some sort of you know, seminar about how, to, how do we get numbers and you know, get people in the seats. I'm not talking about the numerical growth of the church, but spiritual growth. And it starts from the leadership It starts from the elders, which ought to trickle down to the members of the church. And a church that is committed to teaching the whole counsel of God, as we're told in Acts 20, will see its members encouraged to grow in their faith. And so the focus of today's message and next week's message is going to be the status of our faith. Now, going back to that grammar lesson, we're going to be looking at this morning at what it means to have an active faith. And if you have your bulletin, you can see you've got a very uh, mild outline this morning. Uh, I'm not going to require you to write much, but you can take your own notes. So, if you, so feel, if you feel so inclined, you can write whatever you feel is necessary. But there's only a few blanks you have to fill in. Uh, but it, So where, that's the title of our message this morning, an active faith. So what does that mean? Because faith can be understood as both passive and active. And both are a part of a believer's salvation. Our faith can be seen as passive and that it is something that is given to us by God in order that we might be saved. And so I want to be clear because I'm, I don't, I'm not, it's not stating that it's the act of our faith that saves us. We are justified by faith alone, and we're going to unpack this a little bit more this morning, but we are only able to respond to Christ in faith because it was given to us by God at the moment that our hearts were regenerated. R.C. Sproul has said that the power of faith, the power of believing, is a result not of an act of our will independently, but it is the fruit of God's sovereign act of changing the disposition of our hearts and giving to us the gift of faith. So in this limited sense, our faith is passive. But once we have been saved... Once we have been justified, our faith is now seen, or it should be seen, as an active faith. Meaning, our faith is something that we put into practice. So this morning, we're going to be looking at how, we ha- how do we have an active faith? Receiving our instruction from James's letter to the scattered church. So before we get into his instruction, though, since we're, studying from, we're not studying this book from beginning to end... Uh, which is what our typical mode is, as pastor's leading us through, like he's leading us through the book of Matthew. We're not starting at the beginning, going all the way to the end. So I, I would like to give us a little bit of context of where, where these verses fall in James's letter. It, it would help us understand, and it. it would help us understand what is meant by the word faith. So let's, let's first look at the context of the letter. In fact, who, who, who even wrote this letter? Because that does have some bearing on, and helps us understand a little bit more about what is written. We know it's written by James, but what James is this? I mean, James is just as it is today. It was a common name back then. In fact, we have three James that are recorded in Scripture. We have James, the son of Zebedee, who along with his brother John and with Peter, was part of the, uh, were disciples and were part of Jesus' inner circle. There was another disciple, James, the son of Alphaeus, who was known as James the Less or James the Younger. That's what the, when they said less, they weren't saying that he was like a less important or anything. Just, he was a younger, uh, he was, I think he was a younger uh, brother, sibling. Uh, and so they called him James the Lesser, James the Younger. And then there was James, the son of Joseph and Mary, a half brother to Jesus. And most scholars believe that it is this James who penned this letter to the 12 tribes. This is due to much of the evidence pointing away from the other Jameses that were mentioned. Because of the date, the believed date of writing of this letter, it couldn't be James, the son of Zebedee, because he was martyred much earlier than when this book would have been written. And it's also evident that the author of this letter was considered to be very well known among the early church. And not much is spoken of James, the son of Alphaeus, after, out of the Gospels. But James, the son of Jesus, I mean the brother of Jesus, is mentioned in he's mentioned in the book of acts he is he delivered a a a speech sermon so to speak to at the jerusalem council in acts 15 and so we see that so that it's it's this evidence that can lends us to believe that this is the author of our letter this morning i does now i mentioned that the authorship does have some impact But if not, or at best, what it does is it shows to demonstrate us through the life of James how our faith can grow. grow. So we're told in the Gospels that Jesus' brothers did not think much of his earthly ministry. When John first mentions Jesus' siblings, they mock him. As Jesus was preparing for the Feast of Booths, John records in chapter 7, of his, of his gospel, verses 3 and 4, his brothers were saying, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one works in secret if, his, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then John adds in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. And then Mark gives us an account in his gospel where his brothers th- thought Jesus was out of his mind, is what Mark 3.22 says. And then not only that, his brothers are not mentioned at being present at his crucifixion, only his mother. It wasn't until after the resurrection that James, he either came to faith or that he had his faith sealed because Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses uh, 3 through 8, he says, For I delivered to you, Signifying his acceptance and belief in who Christ was. And so it's the subject of faith that would be a theme running throughout this letter from James. He begins by challenging his readers to stand firm when their faith is tested. At the beginning of chapter 2, he writes, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, teaching us that faith is not rooted in any sort of financial or... um, Community status. And then later in chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, James talks about a living faith, similar to the active faith that we're going to see in our passage today, and how our faith is to be paired with our conduct as an outward demonstration of what Christ has done for us. Now, if you were to simply skim the book of James, just pick through a few verses, not really dive too deep into it, You might come away thinking that this letter actually contradicts what other books of the Bible say about faith. Some have argued that James focuses too much on our works and actions and have even hinted at the idea that James suggests that we are saved through our works. It's one of the reasons that Martin Luther, early in his ministry, was not fond of this epistle. He said it it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. And Luther thought that this letter stood in contrast to what Paul wrote in Romans regarding justification by faith. Now, it's true, James does not have the, some of the same things that a lot of the Pauline letters have. There's no theological treatise outlined. Um, but that is not to say that this letter is not rich in theology or that it opposes what other books have said. In fact, what James does is complement those books by showing us what the product of our faith looks like, which leads us to have to define what faith is. If we look to Scripture, we know from the book of Hebrews that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. And then we read in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved Through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now in that verse we see faith in its passive form being given to us in order that we might believe and be saved. It is a faith that enables us to believe in a God whom we cannot see and trust in promises that have not yet been fulfilled. We are able to believe and trust because we have been given assurances. We have assurances through testimonies found in Scripture and in the lives of others and in our own lives, as well as other evidences that prove the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit gives us this gift of faith in order that we might believe that there will come a day when we no longer need faith. As John tells us in his letter, beloved, we are God's children now and what, we, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. 1 John 3.2 And from this passive faith which we have received, we move to the evidence of our salvation, which is our active faith. We live according to God's word and his commands as a display of our faith, which is what much of James's letter is about, and it's what we see in our passage this morning. So how do we make sure that we are living out this faith, this active faith? Well, we're going to see three ways this morning that James gives us to ensure that our faith is being lived out. And the first way that we do that is we make sure that we receive the word. Verses 19 through 21, he, uh, we're just reading our verses again. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. It is the word of God which produces faith in us to begin with. It's what the Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Romans. It says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But we do not stop allowing the word of God to penetrate our lives and our hearts once we have been saved. At the end of verse 21, James adds this phrase concerning the word of God, which is able to save your souls. Now, James is writing to brothers and sisters in Christ. So when he says that the word is able to save their souls, what he's referring to here is that process of sanctification. Because we understand that salvation is both an event, a one-time event, and it's also a process. Now Paul writes about this in different letters. If we, look in the ver- we looked at the verse in Ephesians that we quoted earlier, uh, Ephesians 2.8, he uses the phrase, you have been saved. And then in 1 Corinthians, he writes, to us who are being saved. And then lastly, in Romans 13, 11, the apostle says, salvation is nearer to us now than when we have first believed. So as we, read, as, as we track through what Paul writes, we see that salvation is a past, present, and future event. And we understand that I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And so when, Paul, when, or when James is writing and saying that the, the, the Word of God is able to save your souls, he's writing to Christians who have experienced the past part of their salvation. But he's talking about that ongoing, that present part of their salvation, which is able to continue to save your souls. He's talking about that ongoing intake of Scripture that is necessary for our perseverance in our walk with Christ. The Word of God must be ever present in our lives. Not simply some words that were shared with us when we were younger in children's church or in VBS that guided us in some special prayer that ensures our salvation, and then we put it on the shelf and it collects dust for the rest of our lives. We need God's Word daily. We need it because it is the truth. In the verse preceding this section, if you go back to verse 18, James writes, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Jesus, praying on behalf of his disciples to his heavenly Father, in John 17, says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. And last week, in our study of Matthew, Pastor Greg showed us, that, uh, he showed us Jesus teaching his disciples to beware of the leaven, or the false teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the way that we're able to avoid what is false is by knowing what is true. And our standard of truth is God's word. There was a bumper sticker a while back that used to say, God's word says it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think it was R.C. Sproul who gave a very accurate (laughs) correction to that bumper sticker. God's word says it, that settles it doesn't matter if you believe it or not. God's word is true. But we ought to believe it. Because in it, we find truth. We find guidance. We will, be, we will grow and we will be strengthened. 2 Corinthians 3, 16-17 reminds us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But in order for the Scripture to teach us, for it to correct us, and to train us in righteousness, it must be received. We have to read it for ourselves. We have to have it read to us, have it taught to us, have it explained to us. But we can make it difficult to receive God's Word. Now, of course, we can make it difficult if we never actually open our Bibles. It's really hard to read God's Word if you don't open it. We can, we can make it hard to receive God's Word if we forsake the assembling or neglect to meet together, as Hebrew says, mean, meaning we don't attend church and have it taught to us like we're commanded to. But we can find it difficult to receive the Word even when we're sitting out here, when we're going to Bible studies. We can still find it difficult to receive the Word even when we're reading it Are we actually receiving it? And so James gives us some instructions on how to remove these hindrances from receiving the word. The first hindrance to receiving the word properly is not being quick to hear or to listen. We all know that there's a difference between hearing and listening. We may say it to our children or to our spouse. I know you heard me, but are you really listening to me? Learning to be a good listener is something that comes with maturity as we learn to focus on what we are supposed to hear and tune out everything else. Now, most young people today wouldn't understand the phrase that was used by many radio and television hosts when they would encourage their listeners to tune in next time. Now, we, they would probably understand like the, what, the, what, it, what it means out of context, but maybe not the literal sense of what it means to tune in, because they'd never had to actually tune a radio, or even tune in their television to the station that they want to see to get the clear picture. You had to find that right frequency, and you had to turn the dial back and forth until you could hear it or see it clearly. I can remember taking long road trips and trying to find that perfect station you know, that's playing just what you want to hear. But then as you continue, if it's a long trip, and then you, continue, you start getting further and further away from that, that source starts getting fuzzy, and you hope it doesn't cut out right in the middle of your solo as you're singing in the car. (laughs) So either we've moved too far away from it, or other things are distracting us. How many of you love carrying on conversations in our foyer during fellowship time? Because you can't hear the person standing in front of you sometimes. It's a, it's a little noisy in there. There's, there's conversations bouncing off the walls all over the place, and you're, you're trying to listen to one person that's talking right here, and you can't even hear them because there's so much other noise going on. There can be so much noise around us that we can't hear God's word. Maybe there's distractions, and some of those distractions can be external, like trying to spend your daily time in the Word with the television on or with your phone right next to you. But there can be internal distractions, having our mind focused on other things, thinking about the events of the day, worrying. In the busyness of life with all the distractions, there's a reason why the psalmist writes, Be still and know that I am God. In the stillness of our actions and our minds, we can be better tuned to receive God's word. And in connection with being quick to listen, to help us not be hindered in receiving God's word, we must be slow to speak. Now, these two are closely linked because it can be really difficult to listen if you won't stop talking. We all know someone who doesn't seem to listen because they they won't ever be quiet long enough for you to be able to say something. And if you can't think of anyone like that, then I'm sorry to break it to you. You might be the one that needs to (laughs) stop talking a little bit. Let somebody else say something every once in a while. Of course, being slow to speak doesn't mean never speaking. It just means taking time to think about what you're saying and to take care with your words. Now, while it's not always the case, but many times the people that seem to talk nonstop are those who think that they have all the answers. They're going around trying to solve everyone else's problems while never listening to any advice or correction that someone might give them. Or there are those who constantly complain about their problems and share their woes without taking the time to even receive encouragement. We even do that to God. God. We monopolize our prayer time with petitions and requests and complaints without allowing God, through His Holy Spirit and His Word, to speak to us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't bring our requests to God. God does want us to bring our knees to Him, but God also wants to speak to us, and oftentimes that means we need to stop talking and pay attention. Because God may be using other people to deliver His Word that he might use someone to offer a sense of encouragement or correction. But we're too busy complaining to hear it. James also understands that our mouths can get us into trouble saying the wrong thing or saying it in the wrong way. James writes more about controlling our speech than any other scripture writer. And he brings it up later in chapter 3. When the section on taming the tongue. Now, perhaps he had been a witness to the effects of an unbridled tongue, or maybe it was something that he once struggled with. But whatever the reason, James war- is warning us of the dangers of loose speech. And one of those dangers leads to that, our next command, which is a, to, that would hinder us from receiving God's word, and that, that we, we need to be slow to anger. Now, James, being the earthly sibling of Jesus, was familiar with his brother's teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there were some similarities to the instructions that are given in this letter to, even in the way he he says them, to Jesus' most famous sermon. Jesus spoke about the seriousness of anger, linking it with the sin of murder. Anger hinders us from receiving God's word. Have you ever tried to offer instruction or correction to someone who is angry? It usually doesn't get very far. Now, I'm not saying I know this from experience, but imagine with me, if you will, a husband who is looking for his car keys. He can't find them because they're not where he left them, which usually is somewhere they probably shouldn't be. So he starts to get upset maybe even blaming the kids for his wife for hiding the keys. As if they would just, that's what wives do, they just go around, I'm I'm going to hide the keys. And then he receives some instruction or correction. Why don't you look on the key rack? Why would they be there? Why would they be in the place where they're supposed to be? Claiming he never put them there. while this might be a humorous and completely fabricated illustration, (laughs) this is how well we receive God's word and instruction when we have anger in our hearts. Somebody's trying to offer a simple solution, maybe from God's word, or God himself, as we're reading God's word, it's speaking to us, it's saying exactly what we need to hear. But because we're holding on to anger, we will not receive it. Far too many Christians hold on to anger, to grudges, to bitterness. When someone tries to correct them or encourages them to repent, they dig their heels in even harder. And Christians and churchgoers hold on to grudges like it's a virtue and not a vice. We should be slow to anger. With a willingness to forgive and offer grace. And James tells us it is this kind of attitude that that will produce righteousness in us. Again, this is not a works-based righteousness, but a righteousness that produces works. When we have been saved and our hearts have been made new, there will be evidence of us being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then as if to provide a summary of all that will hinder the believer from properly receiving God's word into their lives, James also instructs us to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Sin is a great hindrance to receiving God's word. Now this verse stands in direct contrast to both to those who have a legalistic view of salvation and those who have an antinomian view of salvation. Now, to those who have a legalistic view, I'm talking about those who would say that you must obey the law in order to be saved. But as we've already said, James is talking to Christians here. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's not telling people how to be saved and that by doing what he says, this, that you will get saved. No, he's saying, he's talking about what a saved person, what a Christian, what a believer in Christ will do. He's saying the same thing that Paul wrote to the Galatians. And Paul said, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Galatians five sixteen and 17. We aren't saved according to our works, but our salvation will produce good works. And that is how this contrasts with those who would have an antinomian view of salvation. Now, what does that mean? Anti, of course, means, you know, that that means against. And the namos is the Greek word for law. So against the law. So those who hold an antinomian view are say they they're the ones that say the law doesn't apply to us anymore at all. There is no more law. These are the people that hold this view are typically the ones who say things like Jesus accepts you just the way you are. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that statement. In fact, it's actually quite true. But that's not what people mean when they say that, typically. You wanna, if when someone says that, you will typically see what, what they truly mean is Jesus doesn't expect you to change anything about who you are, which is exactly the opposite of what Paul and what James have written. Yes, Jesus will save sinners in their sin. He doesn't expect us to get cleaned up before he will save us. He saves us in our sin, but more importantly, he saves us from our sin. It would be more accurate to say that Jesus accepts us just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. As Christians, we are expected to grow in our sanctification, to conform to the image of Christ, and in order to do so, we must, as the writer of Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And that exhortation comes right, on, right after the great chapter of faith in Hebrews 11. So after he's talked about faith, he says, now because you have this faith, get rid of the sin in your life. An act of faith will put away a lifestyle of habitual sin in order to receive the Word of God more clearly. And then to wrap up this section, James gives us the manner in which we receive the Word, an attitude that if not expressed, can hinder us, and that is with meekness or humility. If we want to be tuned in to hear from God and His Word, we can do all the things that James has mentioned. We can be slow to speak. We can be quick to listen and hear. We can put away anger and all other forms of wickedness. But if we aren't doing it with a, from a spirit of humility, it falls flat. Meekness was another one of those themes mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes, where Christ said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And when we were studying that part of Matthew, we learned then that meekness is not weakness and humility is not thinking less of yourself but rather it's an attitude of submission of will to a sovereign god and putting aside your own interests to better serve god and others pride is at the root of every sin because sin at its basic point is a declaration that we know more than god to go against God's command and his will is to, is to determine that our desires, that what we want to do, is of utmost importance. Anytime we choose to sin, we're going against the command of God. And so in that moment, maybe not consciously, but what we are saying is, God, I know better than you do at this point. I choose to do this action, even though you've told me not to. That is pride. And when we have pride in our hearts, it will create an unwillingness to receive instruction and correction from anyone else. We should never reach a point where we think that there is nothing new that God's Word has to teach us. Sure, we can understand things better as we mature and we grow in our faith, but we should come to the Scriptures with a sense of naivety, expecting to experience something fresh each and every time we encounter it. So how do you approach your scripture reading? How do you approach coming and sitting under the teaching of God's Word? Well, First, I would ask, are you reading the scriptures? Are you taking the opportunity to saturate your life with the Word of God? But then what is the manner in which you do? Is it it with humility? Have you confessed sin that might be hindering your understanding and, and reception? Are you taking the time to be still and quiet and listen to what God has to say to you? Is that the approach you take when you come to church each week? Do you come expecting a fresh encouragement or challenge or even conviction from whoever stands in this pulpit and exposes the word? James says that if we want to have an active faith, one that is growing, we must be ready and willing to receive the word. But it's not just enough to receive it, to hear it. We must also respond to it. Verse 22. If you, look at, or if you go through verses from 22 to 24, he says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who... Oh, that's 24. That's where I'm stopping right there. Okay, so that's for 22 through 24. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, but deceiving yourselves. Now, I may be in the minority here, but I enjoy putting together furniture from like Costco, Walmart, Ikea, that kind of stuff. You know, you get in the box and I don't know why, I just do. I like putting that stuff together. I'm not offering to do it for you. I'm just saying when if I have to do it for myself, I don't mind doing it. I actually, I, I enjoy that. In fact, I, I think part of it is it gives me a sense of accomplishment, okay? You could be out there and you're building it like you, you built yourself a two-story home or you put together a car engine and I'm standing next to you with my little desk and I'm thinking, we're the same. <laughs> yeah, look what I did. It's the same as what you did built over there. I like, but I like that. I like that sense of accomplishment, you know. Um, it's be- maybe it's because I like puzzles and figuring out things and putting things together. And let's face it, some of those instruction pages are complete puzzles, They give you 500 parts and pieces of hardware, and they give you two pictures and a hearty good luck. But occasionally you get one of those sets of instructions that lays out every step in perfect detail, even labeling the part or or the hardware with the step number. So let's say you're getting ready to put together that piece of furniture. You've been handed the set of instructions. You read over every step, and you make sure you have all the parts. You've got the correct tools, and then you walk away. You go sit down in the other room. You think about how amazing that piece of furniture is going to look in your room. You might even say a little prayer of thanks that you were given such incredible instructions. But you never actually do the work to assemble it. You come back in the room hours later and you wonder why it hasn't been put together. It's not enough to just gain intellectual knowledge of how the piece is supposed to be put together. There has to be practical application of that knowledge. And, of course, the same is true with God's Word. Now, there's nothing wrong with intellectual assent, especially when it comes to reading and studying the Bible. We should gain wisdom and knowledge and and grow in our understanding. But if we're never putting into practice what we've learned, then it is all in vain. I attended seminary. I got an advanced degree in theology, but it, that was not meant to sit in ivory towers and just, and just uh, sit there and bask in the glory of God's word and never do anything about it. It's the same for us when we can sit there and we can be so knowledgeable of the, of the Bible. We can read it every day of our lives, but if, we're, if, it's never, it's, if it's not changing us and it's not impacting the way in which we live and we're not teaching it to others and letting it impact the world around us, it has not had its intended effect. James gives us an illustration here of a man looking in a mirror. He looks intently at himself, and yet when he turns away, he forgets what he looks like. That's some serious short term memory problem. Now maybe you've been startled by your own reflection. You know, maybe you've avoided a mirror for an extended period of time and you walk by, you catch a glimpse and go, well, that can't be me. You might wonder where the gray hair came from, or the bags under the eyes, or the extra wrinkles. But you know where they came from. It's because you're getting older, despite the fact of your best efforts to prevent that from happening. So to think that you wouldn't show signs of aging would be to deceive yourselves. If you were, if you hadn't looked in a mirror in ten years, and you saw yourself, it would, it would, you would be, it would be ludicrous to think that's not really what I look like. you would be deceiving yourself. And this is what James means when he says that to hear God's word but not obey it and to follow it is to deceive ourselves. We think we'll grow in our sanctification and we'll be made to look more like Christ because we simply know what the Bible says. That is deceiving ourselves. In his commentary on the book of James, uh, Douglas Moo writes, if the gospel by nature contains both saving power and And summons to obedience, those who relate only to its saving side have not truly embraced the gospel. And he goes on to say that those who think that they have a relationship with God because they attend church, go to Bible studies, or read the Bible are deceiving themselves. Again, those are all good things, and they are indicative of someone who does have a saving faith, but if there is no response to God's word, if there is no obedience to it, no desire to act upon it, then where is the evidence of a heart changed by the gospel? John Calvin writes, Obedience is the mother of true knowledge of God. When Jesus was giving instructions to his disciples, particularly instructions about serving others in John 13, he pointed to the blessing that comes from acting upon the knowledge that we've received. In John 13, 17, Jesus says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing did not come from the knowledge, but from the obedience. Well, Since we spent a good portion of our time already this morning emphasizing our need to receive the word, this probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway just to reinforce it. This verse is not pushing for Christians to act impetuously or hastily without knowledge. The verse doesn't say, be doers of the word and not hearers. That word only indicates that we are to be hearers. We hear first, and then we do. Then we act. Then we obey. So how do we think of this practically? Are we to wait until we fully understand everything in the Scriptures before we start to act in obedience? No. No. There's, a, there's an activity that I've done with students that illustrates the importance of paying attention to instructions. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you've done something similar to this, but you give everybody a, a page of instructions and tell everybody to read the page, pay careful attention to the instructions, and the first there's like 20 or 25 things on there. The first one says, read through every step carefully before completing any of them. And then they read through, there's like 20, 25 things, and the very last one says, now, don't do anything but just turn this paper in. And you can tell the ones who like follow directions or who don't follow directions because they're sitting there and they're doing everything else on the page because they didn't read through every direction first. Okay, now that's it's a fun illustration that kind of an activity that kind of illustrates the point of follow your instructions. But there is nothing in the Bible. You can't turn to the to the the back of your Bible, past the concordance, or anything that finds something that says now make sure that you understand everything in this book before you try to act like a Christian. Okay, that that's not there, and that's that's not that is not the application that we have for us today. But we should be careful to continue to listen and hear and understand as we go forth to obey. I mean, you look at it in the life of a new Christian. They may go, they may go out and try to do the things that God has commanded without a full understanding of what those commands are. And they may have to receive some correction because they're doing things that they thought was what God's word meant or said, but somebody comes along and has studied it longer and says, no, that's not actually what that means. Here, just as a way of an example, there are those who may read the command to love your neighbor. And then they go out and attempt to obey that command, but without greater understanding of the whole of Scripture. In fact, that, the, the, this is the same thing as people that misinterpret Scripture all the time. They take one verse out of context and they try to apply it to And, and this may be people that aren't even Christians. You know, we, we have politicians that love to do that. They want to use a verse because they think it appeals to, the, to that demographic. But they completely rip it out of context. And, and in fact, the loving your neighbor was one that was used a lot in 2020. That if you're not doing such and such, you're not loving your neighbor. But there's nothing in the Bible that says loving your neighbor is this certain way. And especially, this is, and this is one of the ways that that verse gets totally thrown out of uh, context, is that if you love your neighbor, you will never tell them that they're doing anything wrong. You would never call them on their sin. That's not loving. But that, and so that's why we need to continue to read God's word to understand it. But there's also those that might then not fully understand what that means to actually love because they may try to call people on their sin without actually doing it in a loving way. And so they haven't fully understood what that command is. So that is why we need to continually be students of the word. In both scenarios, we are to obey the commands as we continue to hear what God's Word has to say to us. We keep His Word with us as we go out and obey it. So in James' illustration of a man forgetting his face after looking in the mirror, the Word of God is our mirror. We are to take it with us, consistently holding it up to our lives to see if the reflection matches. Is what God's word is what is said in God's word. Does that match what the way our lives are being lived? And this leads us to our last point of how to have an active faith, and that is to remember the word. Verse twenty five. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer but who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Verse 24 gives us the illustration of the forgetting of our image after looking in a mirror. Well, verse 25 gives us an instruction and a blessing regarding remembering the word. And this exhortation is very similar to the words that Moses wrote in Exodus 6, the Shema, which he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The, the law of God was meant to be something that was a part of their everyday lifestyle. And when Moses, when Moses said that God's words would have meant to be on their hands and as front as their eyes, some of the people, they took that literally. And they wore boxes on their, on their wrists and boxes on their foreheads that contained scrolls with God's word in them. They thought that I want to have God's word with me all the time. And I'm not telling you, I'm not saying well, that's what we need to be doing, but we need to take God's word with us. It's something that we need to meditate on daily. To meditate on God's word means to read it, to reflect on it, to study it, and to let it sit and saturate and soak in. It should be a part of you. Don't just hear it once and then walk away thinking you're good. It's to be with us at all times, like the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, our invocation passage this morning. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. But what does James mean by the law? In fact, the perfect law is how he described it. What helps us to understand when we see how he qualifies it in the next phrase, calling it the law of liberty. Now, the way this could be translated is that it is the law which is the source of liberty. Being a Jew, it could have been possible that James would be referring to the Torah, to the Old Testament law. But given this context, calling it the law of liberty, it is more likely that he is referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. James understood that the Old Testament law, the law itself in the Old Testament was perfect because it it reflected God's perfect character. And and he knew that Jesus Christ fulfilled it perfectly. But the Old Testament law cannot bring us liberty because we cannot keep it perfectly. But Jesus did. And because he was our perfect sacrifice for our sins, we can find freedom. And in that freedom, we are to obey what God has commanded us to do. It's an obedience not out of obligation, not out of duty, but it's obedience born out of love and gratitude. We are to persevere in the obedience and and we're persevering in obedience. And in doing so, we will be blessed. Luke's gospel he writes, "Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it." One commentator draws us back to Mount Sinai so we can fully understand this connection between freedom and obedience. See here in Exodus, the Lord gives His law in Exodus twenty to His people whom he had already redeemed out of Egypt. The law was given not as a means of salvation, but as a lifestyle for those who had been saved. God was speaking to those whom he had brought out of bondage, not those, not those whom he was bringing into bondage by imposing his law upon them. The law was given as a safeguard to the freedom they now enjoyed. To quote from this commentary, true freedom is the opportunity and the ability to give expression to what we truly are. We are truly free when we live the life appropriate to those who are created in the image of God. And this is the blessing that James is speaking of. We should keep God's word, his perfect law, close to our hearts. We receive it, but it's not just that receiving and not even just the responding to it in the moment. But how? what are we doing to remember it? As I said, are you meditating on God's Word? We don't like the word meditate because it has a lot of Eastern religion connotations to it. But to meditate on God's Word, is just means to sit and to study, to read it over and over again. Open up your Bible. Read that chapter or even that verse. Spend several days just reflecting on what that passage means that you're reading that day. Maybe you say, I'm going to go through one particular book of the Bible and I'm going to spend a whole month just reading that book. And I'll read it as many times as I need to, to let it soak in. I'm going to, when I read one verse, I'm not just going to read the verse and be done. I'm going to read it and I'm going to focus on each word. Because each word can bring a different meaning when we focus on it, just what every word means in the verse are we meditating on it? Are we studying it? And are we remembering it? Scripture memory. Having it in places where we, where we see it regularly. Set reminders on your phones that say, here's, here's your daily verse for the day. Put them in your car so that you see them as you're, as you're going down the road. Put them on you know, your, the mirror in your bathroom. Put them in places around your house where you can't help but look. Your spouse's forehead. And tell them to get a tattoo right here. God, no, I don't do that. But find the places where you know you're going to encounter God's word on the where you you don't even have to stop. But it just it's there and it's a reminder. Yes, there should be the times, absolutely, where we where we take time that we've set aside said this is this is set aside for you, God, and your word. I'm gonna dedicate a half hour, an hour to where I'm gonna just sit and soak in God's word. And then have those little reminders throughout the day of what God's word says. We should keep God's word, his perfect law close to our hearts, guiding our steps, leading us in righteousness so that we might experience blessing. These verses in James, they provide us with profound wisdom for having an active and being an active faith and being fruitful in God's kingdom. This passage reminds us of the essential qualities that we must cultivate to become doers of the word, not just hearers. And in order to receive the word, we must be quick to listen, slow to speak. In a world filled with noise and distraction, cultivating the art of attentive listening allows us to understand not only the words of Scripture, but also the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking into our hearts. And we're encouraged to curb our anger and respond with patience and grace. Anger can lead to hasty decisions and sinful actions hindering our growth in Christ. Instead, we must seek the peace that surpasses all understanding. And in doing so, we become instruments of God's reconciliation and his love. But hearing and understanding God's word is not enough. We must be doers of the word and we must respond to its call in our lives. Like a person who gazes at in the mirror and then forgets the reflection, we deceive ourselves when we merely consume knowledge without applying it. Genuine faith prompts us to act on what we have learned to allow God's truth to permeate every aspect of our lives. And we are able to respond to it because we carry it with us. And we remember the wisdom and the truths given to us. And as we embrace the Word and we act upon it, we become blessed in our deeds. God's Word becomes a transformative force in our lives, producing the fruits of righteousness, compassion, and love. We begin to reflect Christ's character to the world, drawing others to Him through our actions and words. We need to remember that Christianity is not a spectator sport, but an active and participatory journey with Christ. As we faithfully respond to his word with both our hearts and our hands, our lives become a living testimony to his love and grace. So may we be a people known for attentive, listening, patience, and humble response to God's holy word. May we be individuals whose lives are shaped by the truth of scripture, continually seeking to grow and mature in Christ. And may our actions and deeds be a radiant reflection of God's love, and goodness, drawing others to the life-transforming power that is found through faith in Jesus Christ alone. As we go forth from this place, may the words of James echo in our hearts, spurring us on to a life of vibrant faith, unwavering obedience, and deepening intimacy with our Lord. And in doing so, we will not only be hearers of the word, but also doers, living testimonies of God's incredible work in and through us to him be all the glory forever and ever let us pray our gracious and unchanging father lord through whom we find forgiveness of sin and the promise of eternal life it is to you lord that we lift our eyes and our hearts we thank you for your perfect and holy word may it be a lamp unto our feet a light unto our path and may we hide its words in our hearts that we might not sin against you may we walk in holiness As we live out our faith, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.